0: everybody, and welcome back to Enjoy the View with Tessa, Ari Clark, guest panelist Ringo Camp, and our special guest for the week, Felix Park, as we continue our discussion on game design. We left off last week with a conversation about game flow and guiding the user with affordances. This week, we'll be discussing user testing games and maintaining work-life balance. I'm curious to hear more about what testing is like, both user testing and also like if you have A problem that you need to debug. So, for example, to go back to Ringo's question, I feel like this is a situation we don't really design for so much in web apps, I think. But, like, when you're stuck and one of the non player characters is giving you a hint, like, oh, I think we need something from the other town. And sometimes I've been in a situation where, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next, but that's the only dialogue that they were given. So I keep on asking and getting the answer until they're finally like, you need to pick up the ladder and cross the river. And then I'm like, oh, I've, I I've failed as a player. So I'm curious like how designers decide like when those moments need to happen and what they're like. And also on the other side of things, I remember you telling me the story about how you were trying to get a bench to explode and it wasn't exploding predictably. So how do you go about figuring out how to resolve those kinds of problems?
1: So the bench exploding, the context for that problem was that so the bench explodes during the sequence in one of my prior works where a bunch of zombies are going through a door and we wanted to sort of communicate to the player that like you should not at all go through the door that they are going out of. You're supposed to go through another route. The door is only there to sort of emphasize the danger of your predicament, them bursting through it. And so we did a lot of stuff. That we did a lot of things with that, including adding in a bench that like, is situated in front of the door so that when they burst out, like the bench shatters into like a thousand pieces. And the purpose of that, it was also sort of a guidance thing where it's like, we're guiding the player to be like, oh, if I go near that area, I might be destroyed much like this bench. Not as implicitly as that, <laughs> but it's like, it's more of a, it's more of a, a, of a hint. And so, I mean, eventually, like we literally had a, a non-player character, like hot uh, incendiary device at the door that left flames there. So that essentially if you try to go through the door, it would kill you. It's very <laughs> it's very <laughs> on the nose in that case. But how do you decide what sort of to go about? How do you decide like how, where to drop like very heavy handed guidance like that is usually born out through testing. I think the number one fallacy of designers in, in any field is that the design they have made is understandable and parsable to everyone. So they extend their own personal viewpoint on that design as being universal. So a very typical exchange might be a coworker of a designer being like, hey, I don't really know how this thing works. Can you explain to me? And the designer's like, well, it's very simple. You just like press the Zog over here and insert the capacitor into it. It's like very straightforward. I don't know why anybody couldn't possibly figure this out. And the ideal scenario there is to like be able to Extend your viewpoint to being like I have to assume that like everything I design out is not understandable at all, and start from there. And but even then, sometimes because of various constraints, you know, say scheduling or like just things are set a certain way, you might not be able to change design to the point where like oh I can make a more parseable, understandable design, or it's like not really desirable. We still want a level of like learning to go on with people. You know, you want to be able to have people teach people how to navigate your experience sometimes. In which case, like, through heavy testing and heavy, like, criticism and, or heavy critique, you can sort of, like, come to a conclusion of, oh, like, this thing needs, like, a pretty heavy hand or this thing needs a lot of, the player here needs a lot of help. And again, this is also delineated by time, right? So I think in your example, Tessa, maybe the NPC only says that after, like, a minute of you struggling with this, like, particular part of the game. And so, uh, a lot of the more
0: like fifteen. I'm I'm not that well,
1: good. Or fifteen minutes, right? A lot of times, you'll come up with these like times because you literally had like four playtesters on average take like fifteen minutes to get through this space, or maybe let's say twenty minutes to get through the space. And so you start like adding this hint in of the NPC yelling like, "Hey, maybe we should use this slider. You add that at minute fifteen, and then. Essentially, like, and maybe most of your playtesters get through it fine. And then the playtesters who you notice are struggling, when they drop the hint like that, they're like, oh, thank God, this is great. And then they use the ladder. And that's through testing to sort of determine like the, the boundaries of like when you should do things and even how you should do things, right? So maybe because if players don't enjoy the fact that like, you're not even playtesters, if like your coworkers come up here and they're like, this is like way too heavy handed, like, I, I don't agree with the science decision. And you're like, oh, you bring a good point here. Yeah. We shouldn't have the NPC just say out loud, like, hey, maybe we should use this ladder. That should be something at minute 40. At minute 15, we should just no. have... <laughs> at minute 15, maybe the player character comments to themselves, like, huh, I think we could put something over this gap. So through a lot of intuitive thinking and also a lot of, like, testing, you can sort of arrive at that. And, and again, like, testing doesn't need to be crazy formal, right? There's quite a resistance in the game industry to making like a game that's essentially designed by focus testing constantly. I mean, some sectors is actually fairly useful, like say in incredibly widespread games like mobile games, where you need like anybody from the ages of five to like 95 to be able to play your game easily. Focus testing and A-B testing, like like in app, app design, that's a huge factor in how you can create like these incredibly accessible experiences. But in other certain types of games where you, you kind of want A little friction there, just to be able to create like a more enjoyable experience that feels like more of an accomplishment when you're doing it, and doesn't require sort of these other goals of say like monetization, right? If the player has already bought a game, you kind of want them just to be able to play the game versus like experience certain friction points in order for them to pay more to continue experiencing the game, like like in a lot of free to play mobile games
0: and some games that you've already bought, and which everybody loves. Yeah,
1: yeah, and some games that you've already bought, indeed. When I say testing, I don't explicitly mean like A/B testing or focus testing. It can also be something as informal as like just asking someone else, coworker, friend, family, to just sit down and play your game and have them give their honest feedback. That's it. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, I do think there's a lot of overlap there with web design, right? Because we all want to, in theory, create new things that are never seen before, but that also conflicts with so-called intuitive design which is really just i guess relying on patterns that people have seen before rather than being inherently like followable
1: yeah there is like a i guess sort of a bias towards that just because of probably ego i don't know (laughs) certainly in my case it's ego yeah
0: (laughs) i mean it's a balancing act so before we move on to picks i just want to ask quickly about another point that development and game dev have in common which is like crunch time and work-life balance, like how do you handle that?
1: Yeah. So that's a fairly hot topic, I think, throughout the tech industry generally.
2: Yeah. I'd say it's a little hotter for your particular sector, just
1: <laughs> there been, There's been a lot of recent press around that. And uh-huh. I've experienced both sides of the coin where i worked for companies that had a very large emphasis on work-life balance and then companies that did not have such a large emphasis on it. And if you, if you want to ask me personally, how do I sort of like navigate that? I have to say that I try to generally like keep to my hours very strictly. It's a lot of discipline to be able to do that and a lot of trust in sort of like your employer to recognize that like you do have these boundaries and limits you're setting and they, they need to respect that. I don't think I'd work for any company that would overemphasize the need to stay at work over actual production, productive sort of Yeah, I don't think I'd work for any company that would emphasize the time you spend there versus like the kind of output you're doing.
0: So like the perception of work versus the work itself. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Even companies I work for that have respected that for the most part, even they have maybe a a culture of peers looking at people who are leaving early or who have done their hours, but, you know, like are not staying until like 10 p.m., where they're like, ah, yeah, it's kind of like, the perception is like, they're not doing their stuff as rigorously. But sometimes that doesn't really matter as long as like your lead or your, or the person you're directly reporting to has that understanding with you. And, and management also has that understanding that like, yeah, the hours don't equal like work output. But yeah, it's like a constant struggle though. I mean, like I have done, even, even on my latest work, I've done overtime, But for what I, what I do uh, nowadays, tools programming, Part of my decision to go into tools programming was because I wanted to have less of an emphasis on needing to meet really strict deadlines.
0: And by tools you mean internal tools, right?
1: Internal tools, yeah. So development tools meant for other fellow game developers in order to make their jobs easier. But yeah, there's like a lot less emphasis there on meeting like very strict deadlines. It's more of a, a work in constant progress versus like hitting milestones which I personally, I appreciate. And that's kind of what also attracted me to it, as well as like the challenges inherent in, in designing and implementing tools for your peers, which is its own like really incredibly fulfilling beast.
0: Nice. So Felix, where can people find you on the internet?
1: I have a Twitter. It is uh, Felix, U-H Felix. It is what you say before you want to talk to me, usually. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just one uh, right? Not uh-uh.
1: No, no, it's not. It's just uh. It's not uh or uh-uh. It's just uh. <laughs> uh, like, fe- it's uh Felix.
0: Uh Felix. Uh Felix. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, it's time to move on to this week's picks. Ari, right, would you like to go first?
2: Yeah, I, uh, I royally screwed myself because we did a special episode this week and I blew both picks <laughs> for this week on that. So I'm actually going to go with a... A little more abstract pick, and that's quitting a job you're unhappy at. Nice. That is something I recently did, and it made me realize that I had stayed there way too long because they really just don't seem to care that I'm leaving. And, you know, like there was this whole guilt about abandoning my baby. But now I'm just like, nah, if my baby makes me unhappy, I'm going to give away my baby. (laughs) (laughs) Quitting a, a job that is not making you happy is a very high form of self-care and I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you're taking that step towards looking out more for
2: yourself. It's worth it. I feel so much better. Just even though I still have like a few days left, I already feel better. It's so close. You see that shining game design door
0: wide open in front of you. (laughs) Oh yeah. With no flames on the other side. (laughs) Yeah, the little glowing platform being like, here's your next quest.
1: (laughs) Camera's directly pointed at that sucker.
0: (laughs) How about you, Ringo? What are your picks?
1: I've been watching this YouTube channel called No Clip. It's about a lot of like, game documentaries with different game studios. It's really interesting, so I highly recommend.
0: Nice. Felix, do you have any picks for us this week?
1: Yeah, I have two. Is that okay?
0: Yeah, that's fine.
1: My first pick is cooking meatballs or any vegetarian or vegan equivalent of that.
0: Okay, so you mean like the actual act of cooking? I was like,
1: is this a book? No, 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 It's It's literally cooking meatballs. It's great. Meatballs are are very versatile. You can eat one meatball or you can eat three meatballs. Or if you're in my case, you can eat 10 and feel really badly about yourself. They're very easy to cook and assemble. They're fun to make, actually, because you make those little like spheres. It's like, oh, it's like an activity now. And they're delicious. And again, this applies to like meatballs, falafel, whatever other sphere you want to consume. There's a lot of spheres probably. And my other pick is learning Godot. Godot is this free open source game engine. It's pronounced G-O-D-O-T, like in the play. And it's been very fun to sort of delve into like a different paradigm of like game implementation. And it's got a very active development community. It's it's in its early days. And it creates game executables that are on like the kilobyte slash few multi uh, megabyte level versus like having like an intensely huge five gigabyte export which is like insane. Yeah, go learn Godot. It's 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 been pretty fun for me so far.
0: I'm just sitting here not knowing anything about game sizes and being like, oh, okay. And then like thinking back to recent news about that Chrome extension that talks about package sizes and imagining somebody makes it for like, I mean, you're playing this game, but there's this other game that has a smaller package size. Maybe (laughs) you should play that one instead.
1: Yeah, games much like web pages, have gotten way more, way, way bigger in, in the progress of time, in the march of time.
2: Like yeah. thirty gigs, when you know, it used <laughs> to be you had a fifty gig hard drive. Period.
1: Yeah, I haven't times. been to any thirty gig web pages, but I assume they're out there.
2: Well, no, I just met games. <laughs> games have I gotten think... just so bloated. I want to say like Diablo at one point was like fifty gigs. I'm like, why, why? Oh my god! But I still played it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: nice. Yeah, we were just talking about games that also like span multiple discs and I'm like can't imagine that now, but it's back, baby. Will... No,
1: it's back. It's it's...
0: <laughs> oh That's great. it's But you said one was an install disc, right?
1: Uh yeah, Go so usually the multi no. I think Microsoft Flight Simulator, the new one that just came out this year, it is something like ten DVDs. Because no. you can actually hey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean well some people so actually Discs versus digital is a huge thing now because some people who you might be marketing your game to don't have good internet connections. A lot of countries don't have very stable or consistent internet connections. So having a having a game reliant on a 30 gig download that could take days for some people in, in other countries, having that ability to have a disc version is like a huge lifesaver for them. And so to be very serious about the 10 DVD thing. Yeah, yeah.
2: okay but if it needs 10
0: discs. (laughs) It's to fit every story of that really tall building in Australia, you know? (laughs) The one that goes all the way up into the sky.
1: Ah, yes, the Sydney Megalith. Yeah, very fond of that one.
0: All right, I guess all that's left is my picks. And uh, (laughs) I'm just laughing at Felix being like, is it okay that I have two because I have four? (laughs) But I I I (laughs) think... Yeah, but I feel like three of these picks are kind of like I have to give them because Felix is on the show. So they're like my three go-to top ranked games that I talk about every time I talk to Felix.
1: (laughs) I think I have an idea.
0: (laughs) I mean, do you want to guess?
1: (laughs) No, because if I get them wrong, I'll be like the worst.
0: (laughs) So the first one is the second to newest in a series of golf games that's called like Minna Gorufu or like Everybody's Golf or Hot Shots Golf. And this one was the sixth edition, which in some locales is called World Invitational. And it came out for PlayStation Vita and then I think later PlayStation 3. But I only recommend the Vita version because I think that the way the game worked together with the Vita controls, it was just very smoothly executed. And it's just a very relaxing game like we've talked in the past about how i don't like going outside i also don't like golf fun fact but i loved going outside and playing golf in the vita on this one game and i played the newest game it's not the same it's only this game so (laughs) that's pick one pick two is called the third birthday it was on PSP, which I think is easier to find than Evita. Felix, did, would you not have guessed that one? Uh, did you start playing it yet?
1: I Oh my god, I don't think I bought it yet I, on your recommendation. Dang it,
0: Felix! Yeah, um,
1: <laughs> it's also available for, for Vita.
0: Yeah, yeah, it came out for Vita yeah. as well. Yes. So if you have a Vita you can play it on vita but i think it For might be five easier people to find out it.
1: there who have vita yes
0: yeah i feel like it's easier to find a psp so it's on psp and it's like a it's a time travel game where you can like throw your consciousness into people in the past and try to like save the world from the apocalypse or something but you can only you're limited to like people who were in the past so you can't just bring up a body that wasn't in the area at the time and try to try to defeat whatever monster is there and the third game is Hopefully not a surprise to our loyal listeners, Resident Evil 6. It is available on pretty much any modern platform, but again, I'm very opinionated, and I would say I only like it on PlayStation 3 specifically. And Felix and I have played it on PlayStation 4 and the Switch, and it's like not bad. I just don't like the graduated trigger buttons on the PlayStation 4 controller, so that's why I like the PS3 release. And then my final rec, similar to the Godot rec, because... Yeah, they talked about that on JS Party, and I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And then Cassidy told me there's this new one called CTJS that's like specifically game design with JavaScript. I'm not sure if Godot is JavaScript or not. So that is a second option to check out. And with that, that's all for this week's episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. And until next time, enjoy the view.